Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Really, if you look at the pension applications filed by veterans who by then were in their 70s and 80s, uh, their memories of the revolutionary battles left, you know, really like deep images in their mind. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Kim Burdick discussing the battle of what, discussing the Battle of Cooch's Bridge in Delaware. And she's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Kim Burdick, and she'll be discussing the Battle of Cooch's Bridge in Delaware. You know, we have a few regional experts uh, on our on our website. Uh, Kim Burdick is one of them. Uh, she's our resident Delaware expert, and she's very frank about, I think, uh, the lack of people who, who are clear about Delaware's revolutionary history and her role in it. Uh, I like this article because it kind of shows us that there was a lot going on in a place that many of us don't consider to be a Revolutionary War hotbed. Um, Cooch's Bridge is one of them. I mean, it was a major part uh, of a very important campaign, but one that's often overlooked. And these are the kind of articles uh, that I think really make the Journal of the American Revolution shine. You may not find a book on Cooch's Bridge. Uh, You may not find uh, a documentary on Cooch's Bridge, but it happened and it's important. And... You know, like I say, if you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Kim Burdick. Kim Burdick, welcome back. Thank you very much. It's fun to be back. Remind us about your background. <coughs> well, originally I'm from um, Broom and Shenango counties in upstate New York, so Binghamton and north of there. Um, and my ancestors were New Englanders who came on revolutionary land grants into that area crossing the border from New England into upstate New York. Um, and then during the bicentennial, we lived in, in Jeffersonville, Pennsylvania, not too far from um, from Valley Forge. So we were there when the wagon trains came in and all that stuff. So that was really fun. And then we moved to Delaware and... First thing I ever bought when I moved to Delaware was a sweatshirt that said Delaware with a question mark because even though we lived in Pennsylvania, people really didn't know much about Delaware or where it was located. And if you went there, you went to maybe buy a television or a refrigerator with tax-free shopping. And that's about all we knew about Delaware up there. <laughs> what first drew your interest into this topic? Well, curiously enough, when I lived up in Jeffersonville, it was Bicentennial era, and I was um, 
volunteering with a committee that was um, involved with the Moland House, which is up in Hartsville, Warminster Township, Pennsylvania. And they were um, like the battle before Washington came through Philadelphia and down into Delaware. And so it was um, a curious thing for me to get here and be introduced to Ned Cooch, whose family had lived in the Cooch's Bridge House for, I guess, seven generations. And the first thing that um, Ned said was that that was where the Betsy Ross flag flew. And I thought, well, that's pretty weird because that's what Warren Williams, this elderly gentleman who was twice retired already, who was leading the fight to save the Moland House up in uh, Warminster Township, he always said it first flew up there, and I thought, wait a minute, these two old guys, <laughs> what's going on here? So I became more and more interested, and since I found out that the Moland House preceded uh, the Battle of Cooch's Bridge, it just sort of linked in my brain. <laughs> Remind us of what's going on in the war in 1777. <clears throat> well, they had um, fought in the British in New York City area in New Jersey. And uh, down here, people, <clears throat> you know, we we really didn't believe in <laughs> the war yet. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't real to people in Delaware. And um, when John Adams, in talking about the French Revolution, talked about a third, a third, and a third, and that was a couple years later, it was true here already in 1777. They had um, the population here was a third um, English loyalists and Dutch and Swedes had come earlier. They had come in the 1600s down here, so they didn't have any particular fight with England. It wasn't their country. They didn't really care. But they they were the early settlers down here. William Penn came here in 1682. He was the new guy. And then there were a third Anglicans, and there were a third kind of Scotch-Irish um, Presbyterians who really were the fighters. So between Quakers and Anglicans and Dutch and Swedes, they weren't really paying much attention. It wasn't too real. The uh, In Boston, you know, the Boston Tea Party was several years before, but I have cousins up there, and I never go up there. Maybe I saw them 20 years ago. We just keep in touch with, with uh, Facebook and stuff like that. So it's a it's fur and turf. <laughs> and so when the um, soldiers started getting closer and they started um, coming into nearby New Jersey, now Delaware River is really like the road here that leads north <laughs> and it hooks into Hudson River. But you can just come right across the river from Delaware into New Jersey uh, in a small, like a fishing boat or something. It's no big deal. So it's it suddenly became real when soldiers started coming here. But it was quite a, quite a shock to people that this war was going to have anything to do with us. So it's kind of a interesting time period. Um, a lot of Quakers down here. Kim, why did the British decide to land in the Chesapeake at this time? Well, they came. They had already fought in New York and in New Jersey, and southern New Jersey is uh, kind of across the 
river from Delaware, and the the British down there were um, thinking maybe it would be a good time to invade Philadelphia, and so they came across, they came to the Delaware beaches as Cape Henelope, and then uh, Chesapeake Bay is like, Delaware is sort of triangular, and it sticks down below Cape Henelope and the Delaware beaches, it sticks down a little bit, and if you came around the bottom of it, you could go up the Chesapeake on the other side of Delaware. And Delaware is really little. It's the size of a 4-H district where I grew up, three counties, that's all. <laughs> and so when um, these British boats started to come across to the Delaware beaches, um, Andrew Snape Hammond was a captain of what I'll call a spy ship, but he was a British guy who had been up and down the river and back and forth across from New Jersey and then Delaware. And he was keeping an eye on everything. So when these British pilots started to come over, their idea was to go north up to Philadelphia because it's a straight shot. It would be no big deal. But Andrew Snape Hammond told them, no, don't do that because the Patriots have um, barricaded the river with Shavota Freeze. And country people will know what I mean, but... in in the country still today, there's snake fences, and they're like kind of X-shaped fences. The Americans had made a, a barricade of these Shavota frees across the river from <clears throat> just south of Philadelphia, kind of near where the Philadelphia airport is now, across to New Jersey. But these were special. These were sunk in the water, and they had sharp metal points on them. So if you're going to take... Um, warships that were made out of wood and try to go upstream, <clears throat> you could wreck the hulls of your boats. They, they, these sharp metal spears would pierce the wood. So Andrew Snape Hammond told the British, no, don't go that way. It seems shorter, but it's really not. <laughs> so he, he said to go around the bottom of the Delmarva Peninsula and then head north again on the other side of it. So when they came up, it was terrible weather. It was summer, and I don't know about where you are, but down here, <clears throat> August typically lots of lots of thunderstorms, uh, lots of days with very still air and no breeze. It's pretty hot and muggy, <clears throat> and so they started up, and it, it took them about forty days actually, and they were stuck in the water. They ran out of food. Some of their horses died. And, of course, there's no air conditioning. So it was a pretty miserable trip coming upstream. And when they finally got to where they thought they could land and then march to Philadelphia, um, a lot of them were sick. A lot of them were dead. Uh, a lot of horses were dead. And also um, they're starving to death and they're kind of cross, especially the Hessians because, you know, it wasn't their war. They were just paid to go there. <laughs> when they landed, they, they landed in the oh, up around Elk Neck, we call it, and it's right on the Delaware-Maryland border. It's as far north in um, Maryland as you can get. And then it's like a straight straight line across the top of Maryland and Delaware and then go east. So they were doing that. Um, lots of plundering was going on when they reached here. 
um, they're stealing all the chickens, all the whatever they could find that would be good to eat. And also, of course, stealing horses because a lot of theirs got thrown overboard because they had died from the heat and lack of food. So it's a... Um, it's kind of a dramatic story when you think about landing and then coming in and these people that really didn't think the war was going to impact them suddenly are scattering. They're really refugees <clears throat> and they're um, they're trying to go as far north as they could. And Lancaster's quite a ways from here, but a lot of people were taking the, the north-south roads and packing up their kids and their blankies and and going north, trying to get across the Pennsylvania border and then go west to Lancaster where there wasn't so much of a fight. So it, it, the more that you read about it, the more interesting to me at least it becomes. As I went, when they got to the, the border up here, um, <coughs> Iron Hill is what they call it, so it's uh, it's about um, the 10th of August when when they land here. Uh, they're marching up uh, from from Pennsylvania, um, coming across the Delaware River, and um, for the Americans, they're coming down from the Mulland House through through Philadelphia, through Chester, and into Delaware, which is a brand new place. It was just established and. 1776. So we're in those days. Most people call it the southern three counties of Pennsylvania. And then the British are coming. Um, they're coming east. They're coming across from Elk Neck, which is a state park today, into what we call Iron Hill. And the Americans, Washington, and some other people are in Lafayette. They're they're up there on top of that hill looking down into um, the water to see what the British are doing. <clears throat> so they're, um, they're, both troops are moving. So you can imagine, you know, like if, if you're the father of three little girls and, you know, a bunch of animals on your farm and stuff, it's pretty scary stuff because whichever way you turn, east or west, there's soldiers coming at you. So there um, a lot of a lot of people... Um, when they're starting to come here, there's about, I don't know, maybe 11,000 British people, and there's at least 600 Americans all coming this way. So it's kind of kind of an amazing thing for a little, tiny, very rural place like Delaware was in those days. How does George Washington and the rest of the Continental Army respond to the news of the British landing? Well... <laughs> He figured he better do something, you know, but uh, he's marching down through Neshaminy, Pennsylvania, through Philadelphia. They're coming down here, um, straight down, we call it Philadelphia Pike because it goes straight to Philadelphia, but Route 13, they're coming down from Marcus Hook. And um, when he land, when he learns that the enemy's about to, land about six miles below Head of Elk, opposite to Cecil Courthouse. He's with Nathaniel Green, Lafayette, military aides, and a lot of horsemen. They're moving from Wilmington on a scouting expedition. So they're looking down there. They're trying to see what's going on. Um, and the the Hessians looking up at them, they, they can see what's going on. And one of them said... Um, 
that they could see some American officers on Wooded Hill. That was what we call Iron Hill. And they were all either wearing blue, white, or blue and red, although one was dressed in a plain gray coat, and those people were looking down at them with their spy glasses. And the documents say that um, those Hessians who knew George Washington maintained that the man in the plain gray coat was George Washington, but their their troops up there were, were full of people. So how has, uh, in response, has... 3,000 men march forward, and when the Americans see these guys down there, they retreat. And so they're um, just kind of at a, at a stalemate at that point. And curiously enough, the Delaware, First uh, Delaware Regiment, they weren't here. They were up in New York State someplace. <clears throat> but on August 28th, Washington's telling the brigades with them who were from Virginia, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and North Carolina, and local volunteers and militiamen from Delaware to um, send out reliable men to form a new light infantry battalion. So there's a guy that was writing for JAR, or Journal of American Revolution, uh, Gabriel Neville. He said, for the American Army early in the war, light infantry meant riflemen. Accurate at a long range, the rifles took longer than muskets to reload and couldn't carry bayonets. So they were for sniping at, harassing, and delaying the enemy. So Washington is making it very obvious that they're going to fight back, but he's he's actually a little bit shorthanded compared to the British. Kim, you introduce us to a character in this article named William Maxwell. Who was he and what were his orders? Well, he was, like so many people of the Patriots um, in America, he's Scotch-Irish Presbyterian, and he he was born in uh, County Tyrone Island, but his family, like so many, came over here as soon as they could. So he grew up in Warren County, New Jersey, and he becomes very active in the Patriot political and resistance activity. So when Washington is up on Iron Hill looking at all this stuff, he decides they need to make some kind of a light infantry brigade. So he's writing, uh, Washington from Wilmington is writing on September 3rd to Maxwell to uh, have him reconnoiter the enemy and see what's going on as much as possible to find out how and where they are and what they're doing and how you can get over to them. And to just to to judge what's going on and to get as much um, detail as possible. And what Washington wants Maxwell to do is to make a field officer, two captains, six subalterns, eight sergeants, and a hundred wank and file from each brigade. And so they were um, kind of strangers to each other, but they're they're learning what to do. They weren't supposed to fight a pitch battle against the British, but to collect intelligence and harass the British. And so they did. And they were like using techniques that they had learned from the Indians of hiding in the bushes and kind of popping out to scare the British. And they did. But their, his job was to be as close as possible to the enemy. Let's talk about the Battle of Cooch's Bridge. Uh, Take us through the beginning of the battle. What was it like? Why was it happening there? Well, actually, where Cooch's Bridge is, is um, 
oh, maybe by car, about 15 minutes south of Newark, Delaware, where the University of Delaware is. So if you could, on the on the Delaware-Maryland line, it's only a few minutes to University of Delaware. So if you were in in Newark, you would be coming straight south, and then the um, Iron Hill would be to your west, but it's a, a short distance kind of there. So Washington is telling Maxwell that um, on September 2nd that they're, they're hearing from their spies that the enemy mean to come over on the Delaware side on the next day. So he's, he tells them to have small parties on every road so they can be sure of the one that they're taking and always careful to keep on their left flank because they can't then cut them off from the main body of Americans. And he gives them a map. So Maxwell is looking at this cooch house for his headquarters. And at this point, these are Americans taking over uh, the cooch house, which is built, I don't know, maybe around 1750, same as Hale Burns house. And it was a a beautiful, elegant um, farmhouse with a lot of space around it, but directly uh, east of Iron Hill. And it's Delaware is full of small creeks and rivers and swamps, and so that's what they're doing. um, Maxwell's men are placed in small camps in the marshes and in the creek beds and the little ravines on either side of the road. And since they don't really know which way Howe would try to approach Philadelphia, the men are divided between Iron Hill at the west and Cooch's Bridge just downhill and south, uh, south uh, what, east of there. So what the name of the Cooch property is on is Old Baltimore Pike. And all the roads in Delaware, you know, I live on Stanton Christiana Road. That's Old Baltimore Pike. They're all named for where the road ends and where it starts. So it's one of the main roads, uh, Old Baltimore Pike, leading from Philadelphia to Baltimore. Kim, how does this battle end? Well, they lost. (laughs) But... What what um was kind of a an unbalanced number. There are a lot more British than there were Americans and the British actually had more sophisticated stuff. Americans were um had rifles. There's a cannon outside of Cooch's Bridge property, but it's really from eighteen twelve and has nothing to do with this war, but Mostly it was a, a battle of, of rifles and jumping out of bushes at people. So the um, they're shooting, hiding behind trees and rocks and shooting into the British. And the British didn't know where to return fire. This was foreign place for them. So the British would um, kind of shoot randomly trying to do it. And 400 Hessians, these Germans, they formed a line, and with the support of artillery, they advanced on the Americans. So one of the um, important Hessians is von Verm. He was described as being continuously in front of the Jaeger, encouraging them in every way, both by actions and words. And he reported that the Americans in the second line defended themselves obstinately, but they were outflanked in hand-to-hand fighting. 
So Von Worms sent one detachment to Maxwell's left, hoping to flank that position. And then he supported a, a bayonet charge against the American center. So it was it was getting kind of loud and scary, but they weren't really too sure <laughs> where each other was. Um, so Sir William Howe, the commander of the British Army, he was there. He determined to send in two battalions of British light infantry to try to outflank Maxwell's line. And John Andre, you know, the one who's in the stories of, uh, you know what I mean, uh, uh, Benedict Arnold, John Andre was was here, and he noticed that the 1st British Battalion endeavored to turn the left flank of ye rebels and cut off their retreat. But he couldn't do it because there was a big swamp there. And so the... um, Attempts by the um, the British were uh, kind of slowed down because there were uh, swamps, and probably it's what today is called Sunset Lake. It was a mill pond created in the 19th century out of marshland. So it's it's still um, I don't know. There are a lot of housing developments in that area, but it's it's still a lot of open space and fields and swamps, really. So they're they're trying to get through the swamps to attack each other, and Ewald is one of my favorite um, primary documents. He's like writing his journal and stuff. So the Hessians are um, major players in the Battle of Kuchis Bridge. Ewald was leading an advance guard of um, Hessians, and they're coming up from south of Kuchis Bridge today. If you were um, on that road, um, Aiken's Tavern is five miles east of Head of Elk and three miles south of Cooch's Bridge. And today we call Aiken's Tavern was the name of the settlement, but today we call it Glasgow. But if if you went on that route and you turned um, west, you would actually end up in, in Baltimore. So Ewald's got men down three miles south of Cooch's Bridge, and he's being struck by uh, volleys of fire by well-concealed American camps. At that point, six Hessians are killed and wounded. And Ewald, in his journal, he's writing, my... So Ewald wrote in his journal, My horse, which normally was well used to fire, reared so high several times I expected it would throw me. So I cried out foot Jaeger forward and advanced with them to the area from which the fire was coming. And at that moment, he ran into another enemy party with which he became heavily engaged. So the Americans were were doing a a pretty good job for, you know, trying to protect their turf. Um, But Ewald eventually wins. Um, Von Verm ordered the advance guard be supported, and Ewald wrote, The charge was sounded. The enemy attacked so severely with such, such spirit by the Jaeger that we became masters of the mountain after a seven hour engagement was a majority of them came to close quarters with the enemy, and the hunting sword was used as much as a rifle. So the Jaeger alone enjoyed the honor of driving the enemy, us, out of this advantageous position. So, and what he's saying is a mountain. What, Being from New York State where there's a lot of mountains, I will just call it a hill. <laughs> but anyways, it was it was uphill all the way from Aiken's Tavern to... Um, to Cooch's Bridge and Iron Hill would be to the west of that. So it was it was an exciting time, but the Americans did lose.
What are the larger results of, of the British victory at Cooch's Bridge? Well, the final face was near the Cooch House. Uh, the, the Hessians, you know, they had one and three pound guns loaded with grape shot, which was used to deadly effect. Uh, and British officer Francis Dowman noted he saw a corporal and five men laying near together, killed by grape shot. So now the British infantry uh, stormed across the bridge. And it was actually the opening engagement of the actual Philadelphia campaign. But it wasn't a turning point or anything. But to the ones who fought here, it was more than a skirmish. For forever, until a few years ago, everybody insisted it was just a skirmish and that the Americans lost. But um, Wade Katz, in particular, is a well-known scholar of this battle, but he's also an archaeologist. And he and his archaeologist colleagues who have been digging out there for at least 10 years, more than that, and they're finding a lot more uh, musket balls than they expected to find. So apparently it was... It was fairly, fairly wild. Um, so the Americans lost. Not quite a few were killed. They don't actually have the numbers. They say 24 graves are out there, but actually they don't know how many people are buried in each grave. So it's kind of amazing. Um, it's not exactly <laughs> clear where where they are or how many are in them. But different records, different letters home, different journal articles, they have different numbers. And some sometimes uh, the British think more were killed. Sometimes the Americans think they were more killed. But contemporary estimates from the 1700s say maybe 20 Americans dead left on a field or some people say 40 Americans were killed and wounded. So it was uh, it was pretty terrible. And then um, they think that maybe 30 killed and wounded British officers were there. Um, Some British and German accounts said their losses were three killed and 40 wounded. Um, (laughs) So the numbers are a little screwy, and we don't know how many were buried, how many actually died. But it was was lively. Um, And it was just... uh, frightening. Most of the local people had tried to to leave and were trying to go northwest up to Lancaster and some of them did. Some of them like particularly Quakers, some of them just stayed. So we don't know all the numbers, we don't know all of the kind of things but um, one of the things that happened is that the British are now controlling this area which is um, it was a, a beautiful farm, actually, you know, between the Maryland border and going east toward Wilmington. So the British are controlling the field. They're holding the bridge, which crosses the Christina River and the main road to Philadelphia. So two days after the battle, Washington wrote to Congress, We've not been able to ascertain the enemy's loss in the late action by any other way than by a woman who came from their camp yesterday. She says she saw nine wagon loads of wounded. I think this probably because we had about 40 killed and wounded, and our men were thinly posted. They must have been more damage upon a close body than they received. 
And the British are um, now kind of cleaning up and trying to get stuff figured out. And actually, uh, they take over the Cooch house. It had been uh, an American in there. And now the the Cooch's uh, family has uh, (laughs) to contend with British. And they even talk about British horse running up and down the stairs inside the house, which is a beautiful house. It's kind of crazy. And the British said that the baggage will be followed by cattle. Guards assigned to it will keep the drovers in order. Hessian pickets will patrol along both sides of the baggage and cattle train, keeping particularly close watch on the right. So that will be the east. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Hamel uh, will form the rear with the other half of Von Donham's regiment. And then they're protected by two remaining three-pounders. So those are big uh, pieces of equipment compared to the Americans' rifles. And the British said everyone is warned against setting fire to houses, barns, or other buildings along the line of march. At each building, a double post will be left, which is to be left by each successive battalion until the rear guard. So then they're moving um, actually north. They'll end up in um, Chad's Ford. But the British raid historic Christianus, which is maybe five or six miles from Cooch's Bridge. And if you come down to the Delaware Historical Society in Wilmington, you'll see a um, Delaware 1st Regiment flag that was stolen by the British and a lot of other stuff that was plundered from houses in this crossroads. And when, maybe when my mother was a kid, my grandmother, I don't know, but the the family, uh, Nancy family in England, found all this junk in the home place attic that be, had been brought home from Christiana and put in their attic all these years. So they sold it to the Delaware Historical Society. So we have what we call the Dancy flag, but actually it's named for the guy who stole it. And then um, a few days after that, um, they come over here to the Hale Burns house, which is maybe three or four miles um, north of Christiana. Uh, Washington has a council of war here at the Hale Burns house on September 6th. British are raiding Christiana and going north on all these north-south roads headed toward Chad's Ford. Um, Washington's trying to decide with Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox and Lafayette and all these people how they're going to protect Philadelphia. So it ends up that both armies are marching up to Chad's Ford and September 11th is the Battle of Brandywine. So it's a pretty, it's really a very active week from September 3rd to September 11th at at Chad's Ford. So it's it's fast moving and they're competing. But over here at Hale Burns House, which is on the banks of where three rivers come together, the white clay goes up to Avondale and the red clay goes up to Hokesson and toward Pennsylvania. And the Christiana loops down to the Delaware River. But hydrologists love this place because of all the three rivers connecting together. But it was it was very active for that one particular week. And then later on, and after the Battle of Brandywine, eventually in September, the British will come down and occupy Wilmington. 
Kim, how does this article help us understand the Revolutionary Era better? It, it was kind of a, a minor thing, but and always people always said that it was nothing, you know, it was a skirmish, and I guess that was an excuse. But um, really, if you look at the pension applications filed by veterans who by then were in their 70s and 80s, um, their memories of the revolutionary battles left, you know, really like deep images in their minds. And a lot of them talk to um, the Battle of Cooch's Bridge as severe, bloody, and sharp, um, these kind of uh, adjectives that uh, it wasn't a skirmish. And even the British officers acknowledged the intensity of that fight. And he said, while many skirmishes are fought on the road to Philadelphia, none were considerable enough to deserve the mention except this one at Iron Hill. And they call Cooch's Bridge and Iron Hill, no, that's all the same battle. So even though it was a, the result was a British victory, the Battle of Cooch's Bridge served to affirm to the British that their invasion intent to capture Philadelphia would be contested by George Washington and his army. So, so, so that's important because they stood up for themselves, even though they were outnumbered and didn't have the same kind of equipment that the British did. But, but to to me, having come from a a New England background, it to to me one of the most important things about it is it lets people know where Delaware was. <laughs> Kim Burdick, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's always good to talk to you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.